story moves forward. It's Jerusalem, sometime 30 AD or thereabouts. The cross has happened. The resurrection has happened. Jesus, in a dramatic show of divine power, has ascended into the heavens. And there's a group of people, the disciples, the apostles, Jesus' followers, gathered in small space, praying and seeking, asking the big questions. What on earth does what Jesus has done and who he is mean for our world now? See, Jesus had broken into the world. He had, he had turned the world upside down in, in what he had done. He, he truly was a new Moses who had announced a whole new rescue for humanity. And he was a, a new Adam who showed us what it meant to truly be human, tempted with autonomy in the most enticing ways, and yet continuing to turn to his dependence upon God, proving himself to be trustworthy. What the writer Hebrews calls an indestructible life, he is what it meant to be human. Jesus was a new Abraham, who's calling together a new people, born by miraculous birth. And he's a new David, who has consolidated the kingdom of God and moved it forward, attacking its enemies at every stretch. Sin and death, demons and sickness, ultimately leading to a great final battle we know as the cross. Jesus has turned the story of God right back to the beginning. What began as creation now exists as new creation. And as a true new Abraham, he's calling people back to himself. And from this is born a new people of God. And yet a very old one that we call in the New Testament the church. And what I think we'll find out as we consider who and what the church is, is that there is one singular event that is central to the reality of the church. And that event is the resurrection of Jesus. We, for right reasons, love to point to the cross but truly it is the resurrection that breaks into an old world and starts something radically new. That does not diminish what happens on the cross, but there can be a cross without a resurrection. There can't be a resurrection without the cross. And the resurrection is the ultimate victory of what happens. And this morning what we'll see is that the resurrection truly does two really important things, and really in the whole canon corpus text, whatever you want to call it of the New Testament, these two things are central. The first is that it gathers the people of God. The resurrection gathers the people of God. And the second is that the resurrection unleashes the kingdom of God. 
It gathers the people of God and it unleashes the kingdom of God. What do we mean when we say it gathers the people of God? Well, we've got to understand that the Jewish reality of resurrection that that existed in the days of Jesus is somewhat different than what we think of in modern-day Christian thought. See, for the Jewish folks, their, their understanding of resurrection was really rooted in the idea of return from exile. For them, resurrection starts at return from exile, before it even gets to physical life after physical death. It starts with this idea of return from exile. We see it in Isaiah 26, but we see it most emphatically in Ezekiel 37. For those of you who don't spend your free time in the book of Ezekiel, I get it. Let me fill you in on what's going on in Ezekiel chapter 37, because I think you've heard this story before. God, by his spirit, leads the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel actually is a fascinating book to read. It's hard to understand, but God asked Ezekiel to do some really crazy stuff. So you can read Ezekiel and take solace in the fact that he hasn't asked you to do that, right? And I'm telling you, he does some weird stuff. So God leads Ezekiel by spirit into this valley, and it's filled with bones. You know where I'm going now, right? It's called the, the Valley of the Dry Bones. And God asks Ezekiel a fascinating question. He says, Ezekiel, do you think these bones can live? And Ezekiel, knowing that he's speaking to God, answers it in a certain way, right? Most of us would say, no. Ezekiel says, only you can know God, right? He answers it in an appropriate way to God. What that really means is, I don't think so, unless you're going to do something crazy. And God says, I want you to prophesy over these bones, that they would grow ligaments and tendons and begin to be pulled back together. And this begins to happen. And God says, and I want you to prophesy that the four winds of the earth would come back together and that they would, by the winds of the rush, that these things would come up and then ultimately these, these bones come back to life and this just unbelievable reality that Ezekiel is experiencing. And then something fascinating happens in the paragraph that the story writer concludes that passage in Ezekiel. He says, and God said, this represents Israel who now is dead, but soon will live. Ezekiel is an exile prophet. The whole vision is not about a a future dead person rising to life. It's about a nation, a people of God who were cast off, will come back. They will be enlivened. God is not finished with them yet. But of course, also, in the book of Daniel, we see resurrection speaking emphatically about physical life after physical death. And so what you have is the, the, the melding, the, the, the merging of these two realities into a Jewish understanding of resurrection in the days of Jesus. That these two concepts are completely woven together and inseparable. That resurrection certainly means a physical life after a physical death, but it also means the ushering in of the new age of God the new existence of God, the new covenant of God that the prophets have longed for, when the people of God will be fully enlivened again. And we talked about last week or two weeks ago that they had never really experienced that yet. And it's in Jesus that this idea of resurrection finally comes to its fruition. You might remember the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Jesus 
comes and Lazarus, Lazarus has died and he's comforting Lazarus' sister, Mary, and he's saying to Mary, Lazarus will rise. And Mary, understanding the Jewish reality of resurrection, says what? I know he will. When? In the last day. Right? When the new world is coming. Do you remember what Jesus says to her? Stunning. Mary, I am that resurrection. I am the one who gives that life. And then he asks her a question. Do you believe it? Right? It's the ultimate question of discipleship. Do you believe it? And she says, yes, I believe you are, this is an important word in the Jewish understanding, the Messiah, the one of God. And so then when the Messiah himself is resurrected, the church believes, we believe, that this new age is here. This new kingdom reality is unleashed here and that this new people is formed through it. You might remember Paul, first starting out as Saul, being someone who fiercely opposed the church. Remember it? He's killing people. He's imprisoning people. He's persecuting people at every cost. What is the thing that makes Paul, Saul go from Paul? Oppressor, persecutor, to faithful advocate. It's experiencing the resurrected Jesus. That changes everything for him. Because the resurrected Jesus, therefore, not only is what he said true, but then really is ushering in this new reality. And so a people begins to gather around Jesus as a result of the resurrection. It's a famous story. Many of you are familiar with it. It's called the story of Pentecost. This is some short amount of time after this this dramatic divine ascension of Jesus to heaven. The disciples are in this room and they're praying and the Holy Spirit comes in power. And on that day, 3,000 people become sons and daughters of God through allegiance with Jesus. And we say the church is born. It's really not theologically appropriate. The church has existed from way back into Abraham. But this New Testament, new creation expression of God's people is formed. Fascinating. Now let's think about Pentecost for just a minute because there are three things. Well, there's a background story and then there are three things. We need to do this really quickly, but to me this is fascinating. Pentecost, of course, is this harvest festival in the Jewish reality. And so it's not coincidence that on a harvest festival, 3,000 people are harvested into the kingdom of God. But in the days of Jesus, it had really begun to lose its idea of being a harvest festival, and it actually had begun to take on a whole new reality, the, the Feast of Pentecost. You know what it was? It was to celebrate and to long for the renewal of the Abrahamic covenant. That God would pour out his blessing, that he would gather his people, and that he would extend it to the nations, the full Abrahamic covenant. Now, it is not coincidence that this new expression in the new creation world of God happens on this day. The Spirit comes in power. Three things happen. Remember this story? The first thing is that there's a sound of a rushing wind. Do you remember that? 
And what does that familiarize us? We just talked about Ezekiel 37. This is an Ezekiel 37 moment. The winds from the four corners come and give life to the dead bones. And then it says, flame, tongues of fire come and rest upon the disciples. Right? And this is an Exodus reality because we remember in the Exodus that it's the pillars of fire that direct the people of God, that remind the people of God of his presence with them and move to show them the way, the path to life. The Spirit is not just doing something wild and crazy on Pentecost. It's very wild, and it's very crazy, and it's very exciting. But he didn't just say, well, how about tongues of fire? That'd be a cool idea, right? No, this isn't, this isn't Exodus real. He didn't say, hey, let's start it all off with a big rush of wind. That would be a great, a great attention grabber. No, he's signaling something, this gathering of the people of God that's happening. And then what happens? The disciples, the apostles, begin to speak in all kinds of languages. Right? And we're fascinated by this. And yet something is happening. We've got to understand the story of God. We started off, one of the very early parts of the story was the story of Babel. Do you remember it? And what happened at Babel? The languages were scattered and the people were scattered. What happens at Pentecost? The languages are gathered and the people are gathered. Pentecost is the undoing of the curse of Babel. Do you see it? Now certainly the Spirit's doing amazing things, and certainly people are speaking in unknown tongues to them, and certainly people are hearing their own language. I'm not diminishing any of that, but it fits into the big story of what God has been doing all along. Pentecost is a critical moment of a people being formed in response to the resurrection of Jesus. These people are formed together Led by who? The apostles. How many are there? There's 12. How many tribes of Israel were there? There were 12. Again, friends, this is not coincidence. This is a new expression of the people of God. Jesus didn't say, hey, if I'm going to be really successful in this ministry, I've got to get 12 guys. I can't have 11. 13 would be too many. I need 12. No, he's reconstituting the people of God. This is on purpose It's an expression of it. And then we understand that in the rest of the book of Acts, as the church is built, what happens? The church goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. This is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. That God in his spirit pours out blessing, radically calls a people together, and then uses them to reach the nations. I'm not telling you it's finished, but I'm telling you the book of Acts shows us what the church is intended to be. So the resurrection calls together a people of God. We see it all through the book of Acts. And then in the rest of the New Testament, we're trying to figure out this reality of the unleashing of the kingdom of God. The resurrection unleashes the kingdom of God. And the best way I can summarize the rest of the New Testament to you, is in three E's. You ready for this? This I'm going to get an A-plus in homiletics class. I've got three E's for you today. The first E is we will experience the kingdom. The second E is we we are called to embody the kingdom. The third E is we are called to extend the kingdom. Experience, embody, extend. 
If you want to understand what Paul and what Peter and what James are all writing about, this is what they're writing about. And obviously they're dealing with contextual issues in the church. But they're calling the church to this reality, to this identity, in and against and for the culture that they're immersed in. So what does it mean to experience the kingdom? Well, it means that very much we have the blessing of God. Now, we've talked about this blessing all along, right? This blessing is not financial blessing, right? This blessing is not some abundance of family blessing. This blessing, and again, these are summarizing words. It's bigger than this, but these are summarizing words. This blessing is in those three words we've been talking about. Remember them? Provision, security, purpose. Provision, security, purpose. In your identity in Christ, you are secure. Jesus says things like, no one can take you away from me. Jesus says things like, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome this world. These are words of our identity as secure New Testament, new creation people in Jesus. We get it. We look for security in a million other places than Jesus because we live in the broken world, not in the new world, as much as we should. But you have all the security that you need in Jesus, even when he asks difficult obedience from you. And you have all the provision you need in Jesus. Could you use a bigger house? Possibly. Might you need a different car? Maybe. Could you use a bump in salary? That's likely. That's not what we're talking about in terms of provision. We're talking about the spiritual nourishment for your soul. Jesus says, pray, give me your daily bread. He wasn't asking for physical loaves of bread. He was asking for the spiritual nourishment that comes from Christ. Also believing that Jesus is not going to leave you. Right? There's physical realities to this. Right? I remember when I was trying to figure out where I should go to seminary, and I had a, a mentor who said to me, uh, and this, this was hard for me to believe at the time. You might think, how could you not believe this? But I was figuring out, well, where should I go? And a lot of the places I wanted to go were pretty far from, from my family. I mean, Rachel and I were married, but it was far. And it would be like me taking Rachel and trying something all the way on the other side of the country, and what if it doesn't go well? And what if we're, like, stuck out there? And he said to me, God's not going to leave you homeless in California, right? That's not the way of God. Now, can we make really terrible choices that ends up in really difficult situations for us? Yes. This idea that, that God has your back, the idea of the Psalm 121 that we just read, that God's not going to leave you high and dry, that God's going to provide for you what you need. Sometimes it's going to be a manna meal in the wilderness. It's not going to be five stars, right, always. Sometimes it's going to be leftover quail in the wilderness. It's not always going to be your favorite meal. But sometimes it's going to be your favorite meal. But God is not going to leave. Jesus himself says this in Matthew 28, right? So all authority has been given to me, and lo, I am with you always. If every authority has been given to him and he's with you, those are powerful words. So you have this idea of security, this idea of provision, and also this idea of purpose, that you were created not to go make a name for yourself in this world, but instead to make a name for God in this world. You see it? 
And we find our true purpose in and through our connection to God. Do we want to work hard? We want to work hard. Do we want to be successful? Yes, we want to be successful. Do we want to see good things happen as a result? Yes, but the ultimate yes is so that God might be glorified. And when you begin to see things in that way, it reorients how you engage in your work, how you engage in your activities, and it frees you up from the need to perform so that you can have purpose. God calls you to intentional faithfulness, not wondrous success. And when we live into these realities in Christ and have them, we begin to manifest the things that Paul and the other New Testament writers talk about. Faith, hope, love. Those are Paul's favorite ones, right? He also talks about the fruit of the Spirit, peace, kindness, patience. We wonder where these things come from. They do not come because you go to a class and learn how to do them. They come when you find your purpose, security, and provision in Jesus. Do you see it? It's why they're the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of your hard work. This is an anti-religion message. Yes, right? You get it. You're hearing it loud and clear. This is what the New Testament is trying to wrestle through and, and figure out. Because of the resurrection, this is what we're unleashed into. The kingdom is unleashed for you to experience. You are free to receive the blessing of God. You might say, well, I'm not always receiving it. And I might say to you, well, you're not always taking it. Right? Not always taking it. Now, we said this morning, or earlier this morning, I paused and shared with you my next section, so I'm going to tighten it up for you. And that is, well, that's great to talk about faith, hope, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, but did you see what happened this week in our world? You know, did you see what happened this week at Freedom and East Hills? And my kids were part of that. You know what I mean? You see these things that are going on and figure them out. How do you make sense of that? And it's where Paul's reality of two worlds comes in. The old world that is passing away and the new world that Jesus has unleashed. And we have a choice which world we will live in. We will experience both worlds. Right? I'm not telling you, you can choose not to live in the old world and then not feel the pain. No, you have a choice as to which world you will live in. You will continue to experience both worlds. And I think, you know, one of the great realities for me in the midst of pain and as I was processing what was happening this week is the reality of our call to be faithful witnesses to Christ in the midst of mess. And Jesus, for those of you who are desperate for Jesus to come back, Jesus gave a formula for that. He said, the gospel will be preached in all the world, and then I'll return. And then the end will come. So if you're really desperate, then you've got a job to do. Do you see it? Right? If you really, really want Jesus to come back, then step into that instead of over-lamenting what's going on. This is reality. We live in this broken world, yet live into the hope that Jesus has. And the more we transition our thinking and our stability into the new world that Jesus has unleashed, the more we will not be affected by the world around us, even though it continues to batter us. Right? Because we are stable over here. Jesus said what? It matters where you build your house. Right? 
It matters where you build your house. Storms are going to come, but it matters where you build your house. Jesus also was careful to tell, and the New Testament writers want to reaffirm this, that if you are aligned with Jesus, you should expect difficult times. Right? Churches and preachers, and I'm one of them, we don't like to talk about this because it's not good for numbers. Right? But Jesus did say one of the great promises of Jesus was, in this world you will have trouble. Can't get past it, right? We don't pray boldly for that promise, you know, but it's, but it's there. And Jesus also said, listen, if they hated me, they're going to hate you because of me. Right? So, uh, in college, I was a great ladies' man. And laugh because that's a total joke. I was not. Uh, but I did have... A, girlfriends throughout the time, and I dated a girl, and then shortly after that, I started dating Rachel, who's become my wife, and it's a wonderful partner in life. But there was this weird experience, right, from the girl you used to date to the girl you are dating, and the, the two girls and how they interact in a small Bible college campus, right, which is like going to a really small high school, kind of. And there's a weird tension between them, right? I was thinking about this. This, I think, is good illustration for what it means to be united to Jesus when you used to be united to the world. There's going to be battles. There's going to be nasty looks from across the cafeteria. There's going to be gossip, right? There's going to be pain. There's going to be difficulty. You have changed your allegiance. That is not easy for someone to deal with. Right? Makes sense? It's hard. It's painful. So yes, we live and we get to experience the blessings of the kingdom even though we are in this already not yet experience where our world is broken. Not only do we experience the kingdom, but the New Testament writers also want us to know that we're called to embody the kingdom. One of Paul's favorite phrases is, live up to the calling of the gospel, right? He says, live worthy of your calling." Live worthy of the gospel. He says it over and over and over again. What is he meaning? Well, if you were defined by the gospel, then your life should look like you're defined by the gospel, right? That's what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, you've got to earn this now that Jesus did this for you. You better, like, show him that you were worthy of it. That's not what he means. He means if you're saying, hey, my life's about the gospel, then anyone should be able to come and see you and say, yeah, your life really is about the gospel, He says, live up, live like that. The same reason he says, listen, you're a new creation. Behold, the new is here, the old is passing away. And then he says in Colossians, what? Take off the old clothes and put on the new ones. Now, this is not because you're poorly dressed. This is the idea that, that, that Paul is saying, listen, you don't belong to the old world anymore. Why are you living like you do? It doesn't make sense. Now, is this some strict set of rules that Paul's talking about that you've got to put on? No, we're talking about a culture of existence, right? A culture of autonomy versus a culture of gospel worship of God. Paul says, why would you keep living like that when you've been set free from that? You know what I mean? A blind person that has been given sight, doesn't go around walking with their eyes closed. They're blown away by what they're able to see. In the same way Paul says, hey, live like it's true. Live like it's true. 
We talk here about what we call grace-oriented obedience. That is this idea that we live into the call of God on our life to live a certain way, not because we have to, but because we get to. Very different way of thinking about things, right? Not because God's going to be so ticked off at you if you don't do this and he's going to make your week really, really bad, right? But because if we really want to have the life, the joy, the peace, the love, all the things that we've been promised and the blessing, then one of the ways we tap into that is by living the way that God has told us to live. And so God's commandments aren't this strict rule book that we've been presented. It's actually a way to live into a better life. It's a whole new way of thinking about things. So listen, let me give you kind of three steps into this reality, and and hopefully this is helpful for you, because I I get it. It's big and esoteric. Like, well, just be happy because God said you're free, and then start living like he wants you to live. There's kind of three levels to this, right? The first level of gospel obedience to God, whatever it is, there's things, find that one thing right now that you're struggling with in your life that you know God has called you to a different way of living, but you're struggling with it. Maybe it's grumbling versus joy. <laughs> Maybe it's something in, in relationships right now. Maybe it's something about, you know, a, a positive view versus a negative view, whatever, whatever it might be. Those kind of connected to grumbling. Think about that one thing for a moment right now, right? For you, it's probably very hard to simply say, well, God, you love me so much, I'm just going to stop grumbling, right? And that's what Pastor Adam keeps telling me I have to do. The first step to understanding this is this notion that you have to believe that God is God and you are not. Right? It's the first step of understanding the gospel. I am who I am. I am not an autonomous self. God is in charge. And so for many of you, and me myself included, in many areas of our life, we have to start there. Right? God gets to make the rules. I don't. He's God. I'm not. C.S. Lewis once wrote, uh, this has been an important reality for me, he was like, hey, the Bible says you should love your neighbor. And for many of us, that's easy, because we've got great neighbors. And for others of us, if we only knew your neighbor, we'd know just how difficult that really is. We lived in King of Prussia, we lived next to this guy, and this guy was just a great neighbor, uh, largely because he he, uh, worked construction across the country, so he'd be gone for months at a time. And so it was, it was wonderful uh, in many ways. But then his kids started to, his older kids started to live in his house while they were gone. And they were fine. They were nice people. But they were doing all kinds of unlawful activities in their house. And Jackson was a little baby and stuff was seeping through the walls. And they, if, as if that shouldn't be the bad thing. Here's the thing that really drove me crazy. This guy had a dirt bike. Dirt bikes are fine. If you like dirt bikes, great. Go ride your dirt bike. He never drove it, but it was in his garage with spotlights on it, and he would get on it and just rev the engine at night. (laughs) Never saw him ride it. Constantly. Day after day after day. So Jesus says, love your neighbor. And I'm thinking, he's on that dirt bike again. I don't want to love him. I can't love him. As much as I know you love me, that's not helping me love him. C.S. Lewis says, if you're struggling to love your neighbor... Start doing it before you want to. And you will come to be able to live in it. Right? It's got to be an act of the will somewhere where you say, you know what, I get it. And you start living into it. 
And then as you grow in your gospel understanding of God, things begin to become more gospel-saturated in this reality. You begin to think about the ways in which you have done the same things towards God and he has not held it against you, right? The ways in which God has blessed you when you're saying, look at all this crap in my life and you're grumbling about it. You begin to see a bigger picture of what's going on. You really begin to become blessed by the gospel in in a deeper way. And you begin to step into this reality that you get to rather than you have to. And you really begin to, to, in a sense, be so blown away by God that you want to do what he says, not simply that you ought to do what he says. And then there's this third stage, and I think this is where we really get unleashed into living the way that God wants us to live. And that is we truly come to believe that God is good, and that his ways actually lead to a better life. Right? This is difficult. I know this could come as a surprise to you, but I could use to lose a few pounds, right? And my doctor will say, hey, you should lose a few pounds. And I say, yeah, that's, that's true. That's good advice. I should do that. But I don't aim to do that, because in my heart and mind, the 11 o'clock brownie seems like a better option to me than the 6 o'clock Kale and almond salad, or whatever it is, you know, right? And as I'm, I'm using this illustration to be overly silly to help you understand at the core, this is what we're dealing with in issues of living not the way God wants us to live, is that we really do believe we know better than God does. And so there's this level of, you've got to enter into it to embody the but then you also begin to understand the gospel is really changing how you think of it, and then ultimately you truly have released yourself and say, I, I believe that God knows better. We are called to embody the kingdom life, but here's the key, right? Here's the, the fourth level, perhaps, is that embodying the kingdom has so little to do with making God happy, right? How many of you have grown up in church and you've understood, hey, I've got to live this certain way because God has to be happy with me, right? He already sent Jesus for you. So he's already announced the extent of love which can't be overdone, right? He's he's good with you. The reality of embodying the kingdom actually is for the world. It's not for you, right? You don't embody the kingdom because, oh, God's going to be happy with me, and then I'm going to have a great month. You don't embody the kingdom because God's going to be happy with me, and then some of these things that have been difficult are going to work themselves out. You embody the kingdom because a winsome life is actually more effective than a winning argument, right? Living the flavor of the kingdom is actually much more effective than yelling the truths of the kingdom, right? You embodying the kingdom is a far greater witness than me up here on Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Friends, this willingness to step into the way God wants you to live is not so you can earn his favor, It's because you believe his way is better than yours, and ultimately the way the world will know it is because you have ordered your life according to it. Do you see it? And this brings God great glory, not because you're no longer grumbling, because you have truly seen his glory as more important than your instantaneous satisfaction. Does it make sense? 
And the ultimate extent of this, as we move into this third stage of extending the gospel, right? The ultimately, the, the reality of experiencing the kingdom is so that we can embody the kingdom so that the kingdom might be extended. Have you ever wondered why? Well, why, why doesn't it just happen that when we come to faith in Jesus, we just kind of like disappear to heaven? Like, wouldn't that be great? I mean, I guess so, right? Well, you're here because God intends for you to bear witness to him to a broken world. This is your sole purpose, to be a worshiper of God in the midst of non-worshippers of God. Right? You're not here to keep earning stars so that you'll have a higher position in heaven. You're not here to like, convince God that he made a good choice in sending Jesus to die for you. You're here to let the rest of the world know that this new thing has broken into this old thing. And the God of the universe has announced a new exodus for the world. This is why Jesus really has one thing to say to his disciples after the resurrection. Right? He says, go. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what we're called into, to see the kingdom extend. The word go, incidentally, is not a command. It's actually a participle. It means as you are going. So go is not a choice. You can't say no. You already are going. God says, what, do, while you're doing what you're doing, let people know that this kingdom, this new thing, has broken forth into this old thing. And one of the key ways you're going to do it is by embodying it in the way you live. And the only way you can body it in the way you live is if you're truly experiencing it. If you're choosing to build your house in the new kingdom instead of the old one. Do you hear it? The early church grew certainly because of bold preaching. But if you read the, the, the book of Acts very carefully, it also grew because of incredible community life that the rest of the world looked at and said, what's going on down here? with these people of the way, right? This is what we're called into. This is what the New Testament writers are writing about. And friends, religion has messed this up for so many of us, right? Because we've taken the New Testament commands and said, oh my gosh, I better score higher than 70% on the commands of God or else. My life's going really bad right now because I'm just not doing these, these commands of God. We look at God as this publisher of a rule book instead of the writer and embodiment of a divine drama of love. No, we're called into a new way of living because we get to. Because this new kingdom actually is far greater than the old one. And because we're called to be as Paul says, ambassadors to another place. Finish with this. An ambassador is what? Someone who represents one culture, one nation, one kingdom to a foreign culture, nation, or kingdom. For an ambassador to be effective, he has to be well solidified in the nation, kingdom, culture he comes from. He has to know what it's about and what it's intentions are. But he also, or she also, must be very well versed in the culture where they're going to. Must be able to speak the language where they're going to. Must be able to have the connections in that place. 
so they can bear witness to the place they come from. And Paul says we are his ambassadors. Friends, you are not called to disengage. You are called to engage with the world around you. Embodying the kingdom and calling people into the freedom it announces. Hey, the resurrection of Jesus isn't just some cool thing that happens so we can have another holiday. Resurrection of, of Jesus, God says, the sacrifice of Jesus is accepted. The covenant of, that I have made with my people is fully given. And anyone who would be united to Jesus lives into the covenant. The resurrection says a whole new people is being gathered in and around Jesus. And all the blessings of God have flown onto Jesus and he is sharing it with anyone who would be joined to him. But we do not come to that simply to receive blessing. We come to it in the same way Abraham was called to it, to be a conduit of blessing to the world around us. A world that is broken, filled with violence, in some ways hates us, in other ways just doesn't get what we're doing, right? It said one of the funniest things in the story of Pentecost is some people were so attracted to it and other people said, laughed at them and said they must be drunk, right? And people will tell that to you, right? Not, maybe not that you're drunk, but you're stupid or you're silly or you, don't, you can't think right. We should expect these things. And so we're called to be this conduit into the world that says the new is here, the old is passing Boy, God has entrusted you to tell his story to this world. What is your place in this story? You are a son and a daughter of God, redeemed by Jesus and sent as an ambassador to your job, to your family, to your neighborhood, to your town, to your social circles, to your family, wherever you are, to faithfully tell the story with your words and even more importantly, with the way you orient your life. This is who we are. This is what the church is. Not some crazy religious thing that started. No, no, no. A massive unleashing of the kingdom of God to the world around us. This church exists not for us, but for this world, for the glory of God. Can I pray with you?